0: Last One to the Party, the podcast where we check in with someone who's checking out a classic film, long-running TV show, or legendary performer for the very first time. This episode is a special episode. It's a two-part episode where Jess and DeHaley Hall take a look at Seinfeld for the very first time. DeHaley is an actor, director, producer, writer performer, all-around very talented woman. She has appeared on Grace and Frankie as Wenda. She's on Dear White People as Derica. In part one, we start to take a look at Seinfeld, but we have a couple of typical digressions. There's a a jazz mention by me. There's also a digression into social issues, and it gets pretty deep into the topic. We, of course, address Michael Richards' unfortunate incident in around 2007, which then scoots on over to talking about Woody Allen and also Dave Chappelle and Chris Rock. So there's a lot of interesting side discussions that happen in this particular episode. In this episode and the second part, you may discover and notice that I probably know too much about Jerry Seinfeld and Larry David and sitcoms and TV. I'm not going to hide from it. I do know too much. There's references to Fridays and and an early Julia Louis-Dreyfus sitcom called Day by Day. These are not things that people should know and hold on to. some 30 years later. And yet, there they are. Part two will be released the following day, so there won't be any huge gap. You can go right from one to the other. I hope you will enjoy our conversation with Jessica Eason and DeHaley Hall. My first question is for both of you, because you're both new to this show, is it seemed to be such a part of the time and of its time in the 90s that everybody was making references to it. How did you manage to avoid it? How did you manage to never be curious to even watch an episode while it was sort of dominating the cultural landscape?
1: Mm, I will say this. I wouldn't say I was unaware of Seinfeld, but I just wasn't fanatical like everyone else. And I believe, I think at the time... I was watching other things. I think I was watching Living Single. And (laughs) I mean, I was like, what was Khadija doing? What was Maxine? Not to say that I think, let's be honest, James. Let's call, mark out the elephant in the room. There wasn't much about me or in it, even in it. And I lived in New York in the 90s. And I I definitely would saw the, people that were on Seinfeld, like they existed. I could see them in my world. But me living in New York wasn't necessarily there either. So I was just like, cool, this is a great show, but because people are talking about it, but I was not, I didn't become a devotee.
0: Seinfeld reflected a very thin slice of, of New York. Very thin slice, right? In a way that is kind of parallel, similar, comparable to Woody Allen movies. And- oh, yes. For me, I became a fan of Jerry Seinfeld's comedy when I was a kid and saw him on the Tonight Show. I was like, "Oh, this guy's really funny because what he was doing was different. It was observational humor, the way George Carlin did, but it wasn't as wordplay. It wasn't. It was as much more benign in a way, and just kind of what happens to the sock in the dryer, and he acts it out, you know, making its big escape. The pilot
1: that. episode, I saw that episode too.
0: in a way that I did not excuse or ignore in Woody Allen movies. It didn't register for me just how white it is and as Jess was re-watching for me re-watching for her watching these episodes it was just like I kind of had to fight the urge to to laugh under my breath at how every part in this show is just a white guy not everyone has to be like I get it that like your four leads are all white and that's a different hill to climb even the supporting characters yes are also white so when you say you were watching living single I was like I'm glad. I would. <laughs> I feel like on some level, I might have been concerned for you if you'd yeah. been watching like <laughs> Married with Children and Seinfeld. It's yes. like
1: and Friends. I also watched Felicity. That one I did, which is pretty white too.
2: Oh yeah, I didn't watch Felicity. You're better than me. I was going to say the reason I don't think I watched Seinfeld was I just didn't have any interest in it. I, I and I just was like I don't. Care about this show. And I'm with you. Like, obviously, Seinfeld is huge. Everyone knows Seinfeld. I don't have to watch it to know, like you said, like the four main people, totally know who they are, totally even know some of the famous episodes or quotes because the show was so big that I'd have to watch it to know the references. No soup for you. Yeah, knew that without watching it. So part of me was like, well, why would I watch it if I just know the hot topic points of it? Right. So I felt good about that. But I wanted to go back to just for a second, the Woody Allen thing, because I mean, now, you know, obviously Woody Allen is canceled, but I have to say it's so funny and interesting and speaks more to me of like, I love a lot of Woody Allen films and they exactly are exactly the same problem, right? So it's kind of, I guess I would say for Woody Allen, the really great films to me are like Hannah and Her Sisters or um, what's the one with? Annie Hall. I don't really love Annie Hall, but what's the the one? Manhattan. It's so disgusting. He likes that 12-year-old girl. I don't like Manhattan. I like like Han or Sisters is my favorite one he's ever made, and then the one where they kill the person. What's that
0: called? Crimes and Misdemeanors. Crimes
2: and Misdemeanors. Mm. Those two movies to me are like perfection, right? But the actors in all those movies are fantastic, and his script is fantastic, and the music is amazing, and to me it's more of like a a dream of what you could live in Manhattan, right? You had all that money and you lived up on the Upper West Side and art and da-da-da, whereas Seinfeld just felt like random people I didn't care about.
1: One of the things that I think pushed me away, because I was like, why did I watch like Felicity, for example, which is like very white and New York and a fake NYU kind of moment. And I was also, and I think the reason why is because I will watch anything with a female lead. And if it's a male lead, I have to like really be pushed into, not, not pushed into, I will watch up with a male lead, but I'll be more open to watching things that have a female lead. That's not necessarily related to my, um,
2: yes. Yeah. Right? Because I'm living saying, single. It's like four black ladies. I have to watch this. <laughs> Did you watch Sex and the City? Like to me, Sex and the City is a perfect example of, I mean, yes. I obsessed with that show. I have watched every episode multiple times. I used to watch it when they played it on TBS, when they would cut out all the swear words, all the sex, and I would still watch it and I would still cry. I love that show. And is that show representing me? No, No. And I saw the movies as well i love those four women and they don't love each other no they don't
0: (laughs) but is it possible that those things not to divide you guys (laughs) do you know what i mean not to split you into pieces but the fact that it's female leads it speaks to
2: the the women that you
0: are regardless of the cultural background that you can can connect in that way there's an in there whereas if it's four white dudes or three in this case three white dudes and one white woman there's not as much there to sort of latch on to
1: yes and don't Be wrong, Sex in the City. If you binge watch it for me, I did one time, like I was like, Oh, I can see a lot of these episodes. I couldn't watch it very often, like then I started to really feel my erasure. Weirdly, when it was just like once a week and you would catch it you were just kind of in the stories like, oh, these are so great. What is Samantha doing next? And so then when you like watch it back to back, you're like, oh, wow, I really am MIA in this. And like, so are so many of people of color. And it's so also, it's a class thing that I've, even though Carrie was the poor one and her shoes were that expensive. I was like, that's how much those shoes cost? Lady, you ain't poor. I'm like, what are we doing?
0: But that also brings up another thing. You know, you said that you binge watched eight episodes in two and a half hours. (laughs) I find now with a lot of shows, some shows I think are good, but when you binge watch them, they they decline in their quality exponentially. There is something to be said for, this is just a half hour diversion once a week. And then I come back to it and it's another half hour. But when you invest even an hour and a half on one sitcom, sometimes it's just like, ugh. There's nothing there, like I don't care anymore.
1: So true, Jay, so true.
0: With the comedy, what was your take on the, uh, just if you can separate the other thing out on the comedy take of it?
1: Well, what I started to do was really appreciate, weirdly, the play aspect. I was like, wow, this is really like I'm watching theater. They come in the door, it's a multicam, and it was so like clearly a set, and it felt like I was like watching a, a play. Also, you started to see like who's good at being in a play. Jerry is not. Jerry is so bad. Like the he's fact so that he bad. He's breaking yes. all the time. He breaks then, all the time. All the time. And then the person who obviously is the most problematic of all, who said the n word. Yeah. Is the best in the play format. He understands his physicality, how to use the space. Like I, he was very undeniable. Like, even better than George in, like, understanding how to use and the timing. I was like, he really is really brilliant in, his, um, in the, his execution of, like, using the play in that kind of way. Yes.
0: He's another one who actually flew under the radar for a while. In the early, early 80s, maybe 1980, ABC came out with a show called Friday's because SNL, the original cast had left, and their ratings were tanking, and ABC, I think, saw it as an opportunity to cash in on that audience. So they did a sketch show on Fridays. He was in the cast, Larry David was in the cast, and he would do these things on that sketch show that I couldn't stop watching. They were so bizarre. He's got a very bizarre sense, like the understanding here is that he did the inexcusable and was filmed at the Laugh Factory. Right.
1: Right. Yes.
0: Setting that aside, just for purposes of this particular discussion, he would do things with physicality where he played a kid playing with army toys. That was so.
1: That's what I'm saying. He was, it's undeniable. And I, I mean, we could talk about what does that mean? Like, for example, I may get flack for this as a black woman. I am definitely not out here trying to okay people using that word at all but I do feel like there is the point of life is for people to to create value if I believe that you are going to now make a real investment in understanding like where that comes from and what is happening with you and really like not just do a token amends but like really kind of live your life to kind of work on this I can feel comfortable with that I, I, and I don't know what that is. I'm not going to be following up on you to be like, Did you do it? I also feel like so many people do just the weird apology and they don't mean it. I do take i'm not assuming like we should just blanketly forgive Michael Richardson because if I don't know how he is, well, but I also don't feel like people should be like prosecuted forever
0: I don't know where he falls on on this spectrum, but I think there's the difference of you know that token apology that you talk about is when Somebody who is narrow-minded or extremely shallow and has never given any thought to any of these issues gets Correct. caught with their their racism on full display.
1: Correct. Versus
0: somebody who, you know, I think I'm not sure who it was that talked about it. I think it was maybe Chappelle talked about this. And uh, he's very problematic. And yeah. And to that end, he Michael Richards is not a very tenured stand-up. He did stand up early on before this. Sketch show I mentioned, just as a means, I think, to get other work, which a lot of people did in the late 70s, early eighties. I don't think he had the tools to deal with a tough crowd, a crowd that was heckling him, whatever, and he lost his mind. I've seen him talk about it on Letterman. They had that weird thing where he came on and apologized, and he seemed very contrite. And in other interviews where I've seen, he seems kind of just completely kind of crushed in a way. Like he 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 knows that this is a thing that's gonna be like first or second line of his obituary is going to be yeah. this thing. And he seems kind of crushed by it. So it seems like it was a genuine thing, but then hand in hand with that is they did on curb your enthusiasm. They did a show where they were kind of reuniting the old Seinfeld group. And I forget who it was, but they had a, a black actor in the show. I want to say it's like a, a rap artist was like, oh. no, man, you're cool. It's okay. And I was like, Nope. That's not how that goes. <laughs> it seems so oh my god, Yeah, he false. does not so speak for us. Yeah, it's like yeah, whoa, Larry David doesn't us. get to put words in your mouth. Yeah, no, really,
1: absolutely, really not. bad.
0: I think I think what you're talking about, I, I presume, is like somebody makes a mistake and they atone for it, right? Don't exactly. you have to give a measure of forgiveness? You can't just keep pummeling somebody. When that tape came out, I just sort of was like, oh shit. This guy who I love to watch has really stepped in it up to his chest. And I'm like, I got to step away from enjoying him now for a long time.
1: I'm going to even be more controversial with you. Because I feel like this is what this podcast is about. I also (laughs) feel like (laughs) um, I'm a Buddhist and we believe in like the 10 worlds where things like mutually exist at the same time. You can be in the world of hell in the same time as the world of Buddhahood. It's all is happening. And I believe you can hold two things at one time. You can acknowledge that this person is a brilliant performer and has done a bad thing. You can acknowledge, like, I will always love The Cosby Show. I'm never not going to not love The Cosby Show. But I can also acknowledge that Bill Cosby did horrible things. I can also acknowledge that when I was at USC, and he walked past the door, I ran out to be like, oh my God, this was before everything came out. I was like, Dr. Cosby, I can't believe you're here. And he's like, shouldn't you be in class? And I was like, I should, but I just had to say hi. And he's laughed, And then I went back in my class and he probably was not a monster to everyone. So So people who say you can't dismiss somebody who had a horrible experience and be like, that's not who I know. He's a good guy. He couldn't have done that to you. You can't also be like, if someone is a has been a monster do you be like if someone's like i had a good experience with them th- that's likely like they did actually have a good experience with them yeah it, they both can happen
0: here comes the obligatory jazz reference for our podcast Miles. Had, yeah Miles Davis is yeah. really problematic he yes. told his wife to stop being in West Side Story he yeah, has performing. been physically abusive to Cicely Tyson he is yeah. on and on and on he's but my god you put on sketches of Spain and it's like how this is clearly a person who contains multitudes and clearly this anger and this rage and this control comes out of some sort of insecurity, I presume, some sort of lack of confidence. I mean, it's really- Well,
1: think about it. This is a man, a black man in freaking 1930, 40, 50s America. I mean, we have a, a man in 2020 getting a foot on his neck yeah. and dying. So I mean- we are definitely traumatized and we make beautiful art from it, but sometimes it doesn't mean like, good things happen.
0: One of, my, Fresh one of my favorite enlightening experiences I had was I was in conversation with Max Roach's son. Max Roach is a drummer who played with Charlie Parker and Charles Mingus mm-hmm. yes. and Sonny Rollins, on and on and on. His son was telling me all of these stories and I kept asking him other questions about his dad and we were just having a great time. And he had a conversation with his dad once where he said, when he was coming up as a drummer, if it hadn't been for the drugs and the music, I'd have had a rifle and been shooting white people all day. Mm. And, I, and I just nodded and I went, yeah, I Makes get sense. it. Makes sense. That tracks. I get it. Yeah, I've read enough biographies. I've read enough history books. Like, yep, that line. Yes, goes, exactly. But I've never heard it phrased that way. But
1: then I have to ask, what is then louis ck's issue
2: girl it's because he can't get women that he thinks are hot enough for him it's the oldest white male issue in the book and i loved the louis show i mean like obsessed with that show and i still think it's a great show and i won't watch it (laughs) and i won't watch it anymore because he's ruined it for me and also he's someone who i I feel like never really apologized to me he no i don't think right So no. F him. I'm over him. Yes, is problematic, but I think Chappelle is a genius.
1: I do too. But the one thing that Ch- Chappelle has not been checked for is his misogyny. Chappelle is so astute and brilliant on issues that are relating to black people. But the misogyny part is something that he really has like a
2: full blinder on. Well, that's why he forgives Louis, I think. Oh, of course. Yeah. But I think he is truly a genius. All that, what I wanted to say was when the Michael Richards thing happened, I thought, I don't know if Chris Rock was on, again, problematic, but I don't know if Chris Rock was on Oprah or whatever. But he just had a really funny line that I loved. Because, like, I hear what James is saying. Like, he's not good at doing stand-up, and they're heckling him. But the first thing out of his mouth is the end That's my point. Okay, and that means that lives really way close to the surface for you. And Chris Rock just said, when people ask me, do you think he's a racist? But it was something like, yeah, um, does he have to stab Emmett Till in a driveway? He's a racist. Like It's like, what do you need? I, and I thought, yeah, well, does he have to kill someone for you to say he's a racist? He clearly is a racist. But the problem, I think, uh, Jess, and
1: we've discovered this in this past year in 2020, is people don't know they're a racist because they do think you have to stab Emmett Till wearing a sheet. In the, like They had no idea until 2020 that they were probably racist or had lived with racial bias all the time.
2: It was like the- Me included. I'm not saying, like, I'm not Michael Richards going to yell the N-word up, but I, I, you know, as a person of color, I'm also not black. I've been taking these classes that talk about- the ladder to white supremacy and what people of color do in order to hold black people down because we don't want to be at the bottom of the rung. So it's like, also we have to check ourselves. Like where's mm. our black racism? What have we done to contribute to that? And how do we stop that? So I'm not here saying everyone, yeah. like, I'm perfect. Cause I am not, I am a, I'm not perfect either, person. but I don't have the answers even as a black person. And Nor should you. You're not the monolith. But I'm just saying, I think we all can agree if the first thing out of your mouth when someone says you're not funny is the N-word, you might be a racist.
0: Thank you. That's your Jeff Foxworthy. If the first word out of your mouth is the N-word. You might be a racist. No, it's true. Tell me what your opinion is on this. Somebody was talking about racism. This is a couple of years ago. Jess and I watched this. And they were saying, for some people, being racist is like having a little something in your teeth. Oh, you're not necessarily racist right all the time, but you just have a little racism there and somebody just needs to point it out and then you can clean it out and then you can keep moving. It's You're going to get some more in your teeth at some point, but we just need to keep moving to keep those little things out. Do you think there's <laughs> any truth in that? Is that or is that?
1: No, I don't think there's any truth in there because the thing is, it's not a little something in your teeth. It is a cancer in your body that you don't even realize that, that is fully eating you out and is insidious and is a part of everything that you're doing this is the issue it's like you think you're not and then one thing will trigger you to be like oh I'm sure she got that job because of blah you it's coming from there or I don't trust this person I can't tell you why I don't trust this person but it's like you if you're not actively checking yourself and actively being anti-racist you then start attributing all of these things to just like, I don't know why they felt like that. I was just saying, like, I didn't feel comfortable. It had nothing to do with this or that. And you start to qualify all these things. And so it's not like just something in your teeth. We have been indoctrinated for hundreds, if not, I believe, thousands of years because of European imperialism. I mean, like what they've done with colonialism throughout the world. I mean, the fact that countries in the Caribbean are are Catholic is horrible. Like they had their own religions. There's been so much white imperialism um, indoctrination that has suppressed people of color who by the way, there are more people of color on the planet than there are white people. And so the fact that they that has that is so pervasive. if you don't really look at it, your whole body is riddled with the racism. You were trained from it. I was trained from it from 21 Jump Street. It's not in your teeth. You got stage four.
0: <laughs> it also makes me wonder, so much maybe is rooted in Christianity. And that was started in the Middle East by people of color. But boy, oh. those those white folks really took the ball and ran with it in a way that I don't think Blonde, anybody blue
1: Jesus. I mean, right. that,
0: but also just the proselytizing and the converting and all of that stuff. I don't know if that was part of the original message or not but boy they took that and they just Mm -hmm. spread it everywhere they could yes
2: yes it's just another tool for white supremacy it's just another way to make you feel good about your white supremacy by putting jesus on it you're not fooling anybody
1: and i wonder about the term even white supremacy because i feel like is white supremacy making whites feel supreme? Messy, You know what I mean? Like, it, like the term white privilege still feels like you still got the juice. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like we got to find like a term that's like, what if it was like delusionment? Like it is a negative term, like a
0: white delusional disaffective disorder or something,
1: <laughs> or like, a, like a cancer. White cancer, in erosion, <laughs> illness, a sickness. Maybe it should be called white sickness because that's what it is. It's a sickness yeah, to feel is. like you have to erase a culture or like suppress because you're, you fear that. Because I think it comes from a fear of them feeling erased. So they have to make sure. I don't know. I have no idea why. The Crusades happened. Like, why couldn't people just like let people believe what they wanted to believe? I don't
2: know. I don't know, but Seinfeld. Seinfeld.
0: <laughs> but I, I want to get think, back to the thing yeah. you said about people doing plays, because in seeing a lot of these episodes, again, for the first time in a long time, I've already spoken about my affection for Michael Richards' performance abilities. Julia Louis-Dreyfus really stood out to me as just being... Such a solid, just home run hitter. She's delivering all the lines just right. She's got really good timing. She's just so strong. And I think I didn't fully appreciate her at the time. Although, again, to show my age and my TV nerdiness, she was on an old sitcom before this. She was also on SNL in the 80s. But she was on a sitcom called Day by Day. She would come on screen as like the yuppie best friend who was all full of ambition and she would slay. She was so funny. And then she got on Seinfeld and I thought, oh, I remember her from that thing. And so I think that I liked her, but I didn't fully appreciate her. Now I'm watching her after having binged Veep and I just see what a skilled sitcom performer she is. Just amazing.
1: She really is. And I actually got to see, because I'm glad you took us through like early episodes on. Her performance in the, um, the Chinese uh, restaurant, you see her development by the time we get to the soup Nazi. Seinfeld did not necessarily grow in each. I think he got a little bit better. She really was like, you saw like a very quick progression in terms of like being comfortable with her. Like, it's so interesting because if you see her in, and also like what they did with her in the, the Chinese restaurant, all of the things that were happening. And she was like, Jerry, go ask them. Jerry, do this. And then, like, by that time we get to the soup Nazi, she's doing her own thing. And, like, she's doing her own thing before that, too. Like, she's literally pushing and doing her own stuff. But it was very interesting how, in the beginning, they just had her...
2: I agree with you with everything you're saying. I think she obviously is very talented. You see it from the beginning. But then you're right, Haley, I agree. Like, as the seasons go on, you're like, oh this woman's amazing. Like she, mm-hmm. because they also don't carve a lot of space for her. They do give her more no. story, but she keeps doing more and more and more with it. And you're like, I kept noticing how they make her laugh at what the guys are saying a lot, which I'm like, yes, this woman wouldn't laugh at that. They're not that no, funny. She wouldn't. No. And she's too smart to be hanging out with these guys that don't truly appreciate her. And I feel like she, you just see her more and more find ways to do the laugh. So everyone's like, oh, Elena's, you know, harmless and not too ambitious and not too, this woman doesn't take up too much space, all those things. She's also so smart and so funny and so skilled that she just starts filling it out in other ways. And she just starts stealing it by virtue of her talent, which is amazing. And in
0: the first, the very first four episodes that were sort of a a trial for the show, the Elaine character didn't exist. it was just yeah the
1: oh, I didn't know that yeah, she wasn't in the pilot at all. I didn't watch the first four, but I did watch the pilot.
2: Wow, what a mistake they needed her. I mean, good th- I'm glad somebody noticed that let's no. talk about the Chinese restaurant. I feel like and this is my overall I don't know what you think about this to Haley. this is my overall thought on Seinfeld in general is I feel like. Yes. I see all of, you know what? The writing is tight. I get it. The structure is tight. As a writer, I'm like, I get it. I see it. I don't necessarily think it's funny to me, but I appreciate the, I can see the writer's skill in it. And I'm like, I get that. Like that, the structure to me is strong. And I also see how other shows have taken what they've done and run with it. Like I could see like, oh, this was the first time So that's like, they should get all kinds of props. And I think obviously they do As Seinfeld. No one one on Seinfeld isn't living in (laughs) 10 houses in Malibu, so it's fine. But what I'm saying is like, I get it. And I appreciate that. On the flip side, going to the Chinese restaurant, I was like, this is such a boring episode. I get why it should be awesome. It's like a bottle episode. And people have done it much better but they had to start off from looking at Seinfeld. So again, props, but I'm with you. I was like, can Elaine just go ask the guy? Did, why is, can she have no autonomy? And mm-hmm. right. But it was like, Oh, this whole thing's taking place in one place. Yeah. I'm not impressed. That
1: was the time where I felt like it was the most like a play because I was just like, okay, I there's the telephone bit. And then who's this lady? And like, and then the guy being like, "No, these people are—they were here before." And and it happens in real
0: time, which at the time was a a big thing to be aware of. That oh my gosh, they did this sitcom, and every time they came back from commercial, it was right where we left off versus a time dash forward of any kind.
2: Again, I get, and I I appreciate that. I really did. I got that. That's what the that was what made it special. Yes. But the content for me was just like I, I just didn't care. But that doesn't mean it was a (laughs) special.
1: It was also an episode. I don't know if you felt like this, but it was an episode where we all could see the telltale signs of what was going to happen. George is going to step away from the phone right when it's free. Uh, The only only thing where I didn't know what was going to happen was the Elaine egg roll moment, which ironically, had this happened in later seasons, she would have totally eaten the egg rolls with no problems. So it was just so interesting to see her now be afraid and be like, that's not the Elaine that we're gonna know for the future. And then of course, I, we knew that they were gonna call their name right when they left.
0: I wanna maybe spot check some of these episodes. When the contest episode aired, I went to work the next day and we all couldn't stop talking about that episode. Mm. The Audacity of the subject matter, how funny it was when Kramer comes in and just slaps his hand down on the counter with the money. And he says, I'm out. That was such a huge laugh for everybody. Did that make either of you laugh at all? Or was it just like, blah, who cares at this point?
2: I was going to say, there were like two of them that I found actually funny. And this was one of them. I thought this one was really well-written. like, like again, my word, tight. It was tight. And um, <laughs> and I just, because I feel like for me, being a writer, the hard part for me is structure. And I think the structure on this episode is fantastic. It's, it's really um, impressive. And I thought everybody's performance in it was great. And I am with you. I thought it was so funny that, yeah, the whole thing of like, they just set it up great. Like, right, George gets caught masturbating and then mom's in traction and then, you know, on and on, and the waitress. um uh, What was it? The
0: sponge bath next to his mom. Yes,
2: yes. The oh, sponge I, bath. I, yeah. I, and I like the bit too when Elaine comes in when they're all looking at the naked woman in Jerry's apartment, and, and then
1: John F. Kennedy Jr. Yes,
2: yes. And I think they had a had a lot of yeah. funny bits in it, and I liked and I liked them cutting to them at night not sleeping, and then cutting back. Like, I thought yes. they were, I thought it was very funny. And I like their little tagline. Are you still the master of your domain? I thought that was really yeah. funny. So yeah, I, got, I enjoyed that one. Yeah, I didn't
1: think it was as salacious, obviously, in 2020. Uh, I mean, I just like, I was watching I May Destroy You and there's like a full, n- no spoilers, but I haven't finished it, but there's like a scene with periods where it's like, wah! So, um, so like that, it, I I I was tickled by the euphemisms of it. And one of the best things that I loved about it was directing wise, the shot of them looking at her in the window from outside the window. And then the shot back into the uh, apartment where you just see Kramer take a beeline and leave. And you all know what's happening. But then like that, I just, I was like, that was a great, I like just rhythmically how that was just like him leaving, like I got to go do something. And for me, the fact that he came back so fast also was very funny to me. I was like, damn,
2: that was quick. It was really funny. I'm with you. This was like one of those episodes. If like, if all the episodes had been like this, which I mean, that's asking a lot. This is a very like, right. High watermark. Um, I would have been like, I'm in because even though I don't really relate to it, Any of them, truly, I was in. I was like, "This is really funny." I would watch this again. So, I that was probably one of my favorites of them all.
0: What I did to select the the episodes is I went through yeah, tell us different lists that said these are the best ten episodes, twenty episodes. 50 episodes. And like, were the ones where it was like 50 episodes. I'm like, I'm not gonna, first of all, I'm not gonna make you guys watch 50 episodes. That's absurd. Uh, <laughs> okay. Also like episode 50, no, we're not gonna go down that road. So it was always the top 10 and I tried to whittle it down. I wanted it to be five, but then there were episodes where it was like, oh, this, this phrase, like master the domain or whatever it was, became part of like, to be, you know, pompous about it, became part of the zeitgeist. Yeah, for- it did. No, it did, right? yeah. One where they're in the Hamptons and George gets caught and he says, it shrinks in the pool. Yeah, they're Yes. Shrink- shrink- so shrinkage became kind of a, a catchphrase of, of a kind. And so I'm just wondering of those, ep- and even having said that, I left out other episodes like The Puffy Shirt and yes. you know, some of those other ones. Uh, because it was, at that point, it's just like, this is overkill. Let's get to the the main.
1: You picked great
0: ones. Oh, good. It really glad-
1: did. The subway was great because it was such a, like, I don't think I had ever seen that one. No, me I thought I, maybe I had, I don't know, but I had never, I don't think I've ever seen that one. And so I was just like, oh, them all like, each having their own moments, that was so great. And I, the limo, I don't think I had seen that, but it was also so crazy to see Peter Krause there. Like, <laughs> what? And then the brewing biologist for me was great because it felt full circle with the Titleist and the golf ball. But the one thing, when you do watch them back to back to back, it does as a lady make you cringe with some of the female people that they're dating number one i'm all like how is george even getting these ladies i don't see this happening no. number two who are these ladies like i just they were always so they felt so like flat to me or what have you
0: i remember watching the show during the 90s and george would be dating these women and i thought Yes. Why are they drawn to him? There is yes! nothing about him. With Kramer, I can see he's got sort of this wild, you know, uncontrollable, unhinged, iconoclastic personality. And he's clearly like the id of the group. And so yes. he, I can see someone being drawn to that. But George, I never understood Definitely. it. And then I just yeah. wanted to also say, I remember there was, that subway episode was a moment when I really appreciated Julia Louis-Dreyfus even more because when that subway train is stuck and her voiceover is going and she's going down the rabbit hole yeah. of anxiety and then it moves and the look on her face coupled with the voiceover is so great. She said, we're moving, we're moving. And then it stops and her outburst, which gets bleeped of her saying MF, yeah. made me laugh so hard. And the other moment, <laughs> Made me laugh so hard was at the end of the soup Nazi. The way she stares at him with such anger and says, "You're finished, soup Nazi." Next, and the way she shouts, "Next," is so funny to me. And I want to—I don't know if there's going to be too much of a, dig- a digression. I want to get back to some of the episodes and yeah, yeah. highlights and lowlights, but. For a lot of us who were doing improv in the late nineties, we would start to spot herald structure within a lot of these oh, episodes. Yes.
1: And that movie
0: biology episode was was a big one where everybody's like,
1: was Harold? you're right.
0: And I don't think any of those, I mean, Larry David never did a Herald or anything like that. So I don't know if anybody on the writing staff ever did like I.O. in Chicago or something, but that was a big thing was spotting these herald episodes. Mm
1: i could see that oh my god you're right that was a full-on herald structure it was a herald structure and then but the problem that was also annoying about the herald structure is like i don't know i keep going back to this i can't help it this lady clearly didn't like george why is him being a marine biologist going to change the game for her it was just so insane like I should, like, let my fancy go wild. But sometimes it bothers me so freaking much as a woman to be, like, constantly... I feel like it's propaganda that I'm being, like, told that these trollish men are getting ladies and this is all that they care about because as a woman i watch this and i'm like i wouldn't care i still wouldn't go out with him even if he was a marine biologist and so like being inundated with episodes time after time where they're like ladies only care about this ladies want this and i'm like i'm a lady and this is not true was very i don't know if you feel the same way Jess.
0: Isn't that the writer's construct? Like in, what was it, Californication? It's a writer writing about a writer who's doing nothing but having sex all the time. So it's writers writing about how they wish. How many of the writers in that writer's room looked more like George than anybody else? And they're like, let's make sure George gets a lot of dates.
2: Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I agree. Because I was going to say, and this is off the topic again, but Californication, at least they had the decency. I've never watched an episode just to be clear, but just to have the decency, they cast David Duchovny. Duchovny, So at least they cast a hot dude as the guy getting all those women, right? But you're right. like It's not like the writer's rooms are full. uh, No shade on writer's room, but it's not like it's full of David Duchovny's no I mean, let's be no. honest here first I just kept well I kept looking at who the right who wrote the episodes and it like I think maybe two of them maybe had a female co-writer it was never just a female oh. it was all it was all men and I kept thinking you know it's the 90s so I'm sure the room was all dudes but you can really hear it because you're right the yes. women are written flatly they are written as one-dimensional they're only there to be a girlfriend they have nothing out they they are nothing, nothing else they could have literally put in a cardboard person I mean just like a cardboard, not a purse, like a cardboard thing and has someone do voiceover. They don't need them. Like and every episode too, Jerry's always like, oh, well, I pick the coffee shop over you. Ha, ha, ha. So like nothing has depth to it as far as these women are concerned. They're just props. They're just there for jokes, right? They're they're just there to bounce Jerry and George and sometimes Elaine's uh, and uh, Kramer's jokes off of. That's why it kind of gets boring because I'm like, well, I don't want to invest in these people either because- like you said, they don't represent me. That's not a woman. That's just someone's idea of a prop person because none of these these people are real people. These are not women. I know women. These are not women. So it's kind of like, and they cast just a lot of women that look exactly the same or they're all the same type. And, you know, I mean, I don't know. I guess everyone in that room had never Ever dated anyone of color. So, how could they ever think that would ever happen?
1: And ironically, the only person they would probably have had date a woman of color would probably be, be Kramer.
2: <laughs>
0: If you'd like to follow Jessica online, you can find her on Instagram at Jessica underscore Elena underscore Eason. And Elena is E-L-A-I-N-A, Jessica underscore Elena underscore Eason. You can follow me on Instagram at James underscore Eason underscore music. The show is produced and edited by me, James Eason, and the theme music is composed by me, James Eason.